0: This is Car Expert
1: Look, it was actually really good I was positively surprised by the vehicle um, Mainly on the on-road aspect I definitely thought it would be amazing off-road Long before I went in and I wasn't disappointed I think it's
2: also worth mentioning that regardless of which RX you go for The car really is beautifully refined I think it's pretty much certain that China will be a top three source of vehicles by the end of this year Hello Mike, is to Hello, Mandy Turner. And hello, Scott Collie. Hello, Mandy Turner and Mike Costello.
0: <laughs> we always love getting emails at podcast.carexpert.com.au. At Tim has sent us one and he's wondering whether he can um, we can help him out. He said, my parents are looking for a small SUV tour to see a JAR, Yaris Cross Urban, Hyundai Kona Highlander, or the wildcards, the Mazda CX-30. We visited a dealership in Victoria and looked at the CX-30. I have an issue with the test drives and hoping that you can help me out. In the past, I've heard that you have recommended longer test drives. My mum has a back injury and requires a longer test drive to determine if the driver's seat is comfortable or aggravates her back. We could only have a test drive of 15 to 20 minutes. When asked for longer, they stated we would only get one hour at the most subject to permission from sales managers. We are looking to test drive the car between one to two hours to determine if the new vehicle is suitable, which I don't think was unreasonable. They were happy to book me in for a day next week. and did not demand a test drive today. Just looking for suggestions or help for what I should do or who I should contact. Thank you, Tim. What do you guys think?
2: Um, I think that being offered the day for next week is a good step and that's often how car makers will do it. You get a shorter test drive and if you need longer with the car, they'll let you take it home and put it in your garage and actually have it for a night with a kilometre limit, obviously. Um I think the idea of a couple of hours behind the wheel is a really nice one and obviously there's a really good reason for it. But uh, I can also understand why a dealer maybe can't offer that, especially given demand at the moment. If they have one car on the floor for a whole lot of people to test drive, giving it to one person for two hours maybe doesn't make all that much sense. So I think the best thing that Tim can do is actually take the car overnight next week um, and really give his mum plenty of time behind the wheel and make the most of that sort of 12 hours or whatever it is because – ultimately, that is the best way to get to know a car. And I think for both the dealer and for him, they're going to get more out of it than just a one or two-hour test drive. Yeah,
3: fundamentally, I would say that um, in that segment, there are plenty of options and there are plenty of Mazda dealers as well. I'm not sure where this person lives. If they live in a metro area, there'll there'll be numerous Mazda dealers in their catchment area. So what I would be doing is I'd be saying to the dealer, I'd like to drive it for a bit more time. Um, If I can't, that's a deal breaker for me. If you really like the CX-30, you can go to another Mazda dealer and see if they'll do the drive for you. And ultimately, if you do struggle to get a longer drive, then there are plenty of alternative products, some of which you've listed there. Um, so I would be I would be using that to my advantage and, and pushing for it. There's no reason, and I slightly disagree with Scott here. I understand the logistics of dealers having worked in them, but really, realistically speaking, um, if push comes to shove and it's it's a potential deal breaker, I think you'll find that the the dealer will will happily work out a way to get you the car for longer. You just have to sometimes push, which is a bit unfortunate. It'd be nice if you didn't have to, but but I think in this case, it's probably one of those situations.
0: And, and you mentioned um, you know, those alternatives that he he did say earlier in his email. Can you think of any other cars that maybe he and his mum could, could have a look at?
3: Yeah, there are a few coming to mind there. Um, so the, the shortlist isn't bad. I'd say the Kona Highlander and Yaris Cross and CHR, they're all smaller vehicles inside than the, the CX-30 in terms of packaging. So if, if, if your mum wants something that's a bit more compact, that's fine. But they are quite small and... In the case of the, uh, the C8 in particular, not very good to see out of because of the tiny side windows. I'd be looking at adding the Kia Seltos to that list. And I'd also be looking to add the newness and Qashqai to that list. Both of them are quite new launches. Both of them are among the best cars in their class. And I think you should have a look at that. Um, and then the Yaris Cross,
2: particularly in hybrid guys, is a pretty good little thing too. I would also throw into the mix there the base Volkswagen T-Roc. Um, as a weirdly proportioned person, I find that Volkswagens, even the small ones, often have the best seats and the best driving positions in the game. Uh, I know my problems are probably different to Tim's mum's, but um, I'd add the T-Roc. Yeah, Tim's the- mum isn't 200 centimetres <laughs> <Yeah>, tall. <exactly. laughs> um, I, I would add the T-Roc into the mix as well because I find that a really comfortable car and size-wise it's quite similar to the CX-30
0: awesome stuff thanks for sending us an email tim now let's just stick with the the master theme shall we uh we mentioned very briefly at the end of last week's podcast scully you were spending some time behind a manual Mazda 3 <laughs> such a rare unicorn that um i'm no doubt you've had a few k's on the clock since we last spoke <laughs> have you enjoyed your time with it
2: I've, I've really enjoyed it, um, but it's also been a bit frustrating because it sort of shows how much potential there is in that Mazda 3 if you give it even more performance to create a really fun, hot hatch um yeah after sort of 10-15 minutes getting used to it obviously after driving automatic cars for a while it's sort of is second nature and you get back into it and start enjoying it and I think the thing that stands out about the three is unlike some cheap manual cars it doesn't feel like Mazda's done the manual just for the sake of it or just to save money it feels like some love has been lavished on actually making it a nice manual shift it's really slick it's really easy to sort of sling quickly through the gears to, yeah. to draw on the motoring journal's box of cliches. <laughs> um, and the pedals are all in a really nice spot as well. So although it's not a performance car, I wish it sounded a bit better and I wish it had a bit more go again, the 2.5 can offer. It's just a nice car to drive. And it's one that reminds you that a good manual transmission can really transform how something feels. I know Mike, you've also had a go. Yeah,
3: I was dead keen to have a crack because as you say, it's such a rare beast.
2: I love that Mazda
3: still injects a little bit of fun and personality into fundamentally boring cars. So a small hatchback is about as, you know, unexciting as it gets typically unless it's a full-on hot version. And yet the Mazda 3, you sit really low with your legs directly in front of you, a bit like you're doing a coupe. You've got this really high transmission tunnel, really nice racy driving position, great little short shift manual gearbox, good clutch feel excellent directional changing ability it really does take a just an econo box and turns it into something that you actually look forward to driving every day um, and it also has an anti-theft device installed known as a manual gearbox because most people can't drive one anymore which is nice um, you know i was even thinking to myself crikey you know like if i was to have to buy a daily it would always it would be up there for me just because of it's just a no-nonsense fun thing that's fun to just drive around in town because it's not that quick. You don't need to go to a track to get the most out of it. So big fan, wish more people would buy them, but, hey, can't fight the tides.
0: No, exactly. All right, we'll, uh, we'll, cover, off some, we'll cover off on some car news now. To talk about this week's car news, we welcome back once again Jack Quick. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Now let's talk some Mazda news, the 2024 CX-90 coming to Australia and with a number of engine choices or powertrain yeah. choices, I should say. Yeah, that's right, Mandy. This so, yeah, Mazda's uh, new flagship
4: uh, three-row SUV called the CX-90 is coming in the second half of this year. Um, it's based on the two-row CX-60, which we already know is coming to Australia and you've seen photos of it. Um, At launch, the the CX-90 will come with two different engine options. There's going to be a 3.3-litre turbocharged inline-six petrol producing 254 kilowatts of power and 500 newton-meters of torque, as well as a 3.3-litre turbo diesel inline-six engine producing 187 kilowatts of power and 500 newton-meters of torque. Just a few things on this engine. Uh, The petrol one is the the most powerful uh, series production Mazda that's ever been produced. produced uh, with this engine, which I find really interesting. And uh, the diesel in particular is exclusive to the Australian market. So some interesting uh, things to note there. But uh, that's not all because um, they at launch uh, at the event, they were talking about a plug-in hybrid version just like the CX60. But that is coming to Australia as well, but not at launch. It's meant to be coming in 2024. Similar, uh, it's, it's the exact same powertrain as the C60, uh, combines a 2.5-litre four-cylinder petrol engine with an electric motor and a 17.8-kilowatt-hour battery. Our uh, total system outputs for this uh, plug-in hybrid powertrain uh, are 241 kilowatts of power and 500 newton-meters of torque. Lots of numbers, but um, all of these powertrains are are mated to an eight-speed automatic transmission with a rear-biased all-wheel drive drive system, which I think is super cool (laughs) because rear-biased. In terms of looks, uh, the CX-90 is – very similar to the CX60 at the front, but the difference is when you look at the back. Now, I'm going to say it looks a little bit like Mega Mind, but uh, the CX90 is <laughs> longer, wider, and it has like a rounded tailgate at the back to accommodate uh, for the third row of seats. Um, to me, it's not great but i also understand uh, other people think it looks great so um a few other things to notice with the to note with this uh, cx90 it gets a, a new 21 uh, inch diamond cut alloy wheels and also a new artisan red um exterior paint color which is also on a special edition master 6 coming to australia soon so a yeah, new new red paint color um on the inside there's a heap of different uh, textures there's nappa leather uh, maple wood and also two-tone fabrics all sorts i assume it's obviously going to be different depending what trim level you get but the top spec gets all of these white and creamy little uh, elements which looks super cool um One thing on the local front, this CX-90 that's just been revealed will coexist uh, with the existing mainstream models, um, including the CX-9 for now. It's unclear what will be happening at this stage, but um, what are your thoughts on the CX-90?
2: I like the way it looks. I, I think that Mazda has done a really good job translating what was already quite a defined and quite nice design language into the new car. Um, And I think also it's not gone too far. Uh, What we've seen from Hyundai and Kia with their really big family SUVs like the Palisade and the Telluride overseas is that they're not ugly, but they do kind of make up for the fact you might not have heard of a Telluride before by having a massive grille, lots of chrome, big wheels. I think the CX-90 is a little bit more elegant. Um, So yeah, I'm actually quite a fan of the way it looks. I think what's going to be really interesting with this car is seeing how much it costs, though. Already a top-spec CX-9 is in the $70,000 range. So if the CX-90 is bigger and more expensive and has more kit, it stands to reason that the top end of this really could be nudging ninety or hundred grand. I personally think that if the car is good enough, absolutely Mazda can get away with that. But it is a real adjustment for, for people who... I don't know, like my girlfriend, no Mazda is the company that makes cheap and cheerful cars for people who are buying their first car. Um, so, yeah, it, it's indicative of where Mazda's at. And it's going to be really interesting to see just how far they can stretch the pricing and, and what the people who are looking at them will bear.
0: Mm, absolutely. Wait and see. Uh, Jack, the Hyundai i30N hatch looks to be that popular. They've had to pause orders. <laughs>
4: Yes, yet another car that you can't order right now. <laughs> so, yeah. Mazda, um, sorry, I'm uh, talking about the last story. I mean, Hyundai Australia, <laughs> sorry, has uh, stopped taking orders of its i30N uh, hot hatch for now because um, it currently has a backlog of around 1,600 undelivered cars, uh, i30N hot hatches that is. Uh, this follows uh, Hyundai freezing orders of the smaller I-20N um, hatch last year for the exact same reason. Now, both the, the I-20N and the I-30N hatches uh both sourced from Europe, which is extremely um, uh not having much stock right now so they don't have can't ship them but um despite this uh, stock of the korea sourced a uh, kona N and an i30 sedan and a healthier that's because because they're from uh, a different uh, sourcing location all up uh hyundai australia currently has a mind-blowing uh, three thousand um outstanding orders that is a bit of an old figure now that's from november uh, but i assume since that time, that number has just grown. So it could be more than 3000 outstanding orders now, which is a lot of cars. (laughs) Um, But beyond this, this isn't uh, an isolated uh, situation because a lot of manufacturers are experiencing the same thing. Um, And and Australians are also running out of of, uh, hot hatch options as well. So it's, Kind of getting constricted, so I'll run off a, a little bit of a list now. But the Civic Type R waiting lists for that one are uh, nudging almost two years, and uh, yeah, it's absolutely insane. Running into potentially 2024. At Toyota, I will only have 500 examples of the GR Corolla allocated to the local market uh, for this year uh volkswagen has delayed the golf r20 special edition to an unknown date so i we'll have to wait and see for that one um but more the sad news i suppose is the, as you would know the ford fiesta st and focus st are now dead and soon the the Renault Megane rs will be two so you're running out of options and you can't order an i30n i want, i have an interesting question to pose but um do you think orders for, for the new hot ha- uh, internal combustion engine vehicles will ever die down given the booming uh, electric vehicle push? Um, I think two things on that, Jack. The first is no,
2: in the case of hot hatches, I don't think that orders will die down in the immediate future. Um, maybe when it comes to entry-level hatchbacks and SUVs, once the market can finally offer electric alternatives, We'll see demand die and and maybe that become obsolete, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon either. Um, but with hot hatches, people are buying them not because it's a practical purchase necessarily, but because it's an emotional one. And mm. ultimately, the people who want an i30N want it to be loud and raw and kind of do all the stuff that an electric vehicle at the moment can't. So... I'm not saying there's no place for electric sports cars, but I don't think the internal combustion hot hatch is going anywhere for the immediate future, provided car makers can start or continue offering them. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is, although it's kind of a shame that you can't just walk in and order an i30N anymore, I do think that car makers need to get some credit for finally stopping orders, for finally saying, guys, I'm really sorry, we cannot supply these cars. We will not take your money at this point. Because for quite a while there, it sort of seemed like people were just getting added onto the end of an endless wait list and there was no indication of how or when the list would be fixed. I suppose it's a shame that, yeah, you can't just get one when you want it, but at least we now know that, okay, the focus is on getting people who are waiting for their cars, those cars, and once that's dealt with, maybe orders will reopen. It does feel like the focus is now more on the customer. Um, mm-hmm. than it is on just extending that order list and making dealers you know, happy and, and then think that they've got orders and deliveries coming into the next couple of years. Yes. So, that does seem to be a positive step that we've seen from a few brands on the back of COVID-related delays.
0: Very good point you make there, Scully. Hey, this is good news, uh, finally. <laughs> Jack, we've got a few Toyota EV models coming to Australia.
4: Yes, finally. As you mentioned, Mandy, (laughs) Toyota Australia has confirmed it will have three electric vehicles on sale by 2026. Now, out of these three, we already know the first one. Uh, It is going to be the BZ4X, which is an interesting word to say, a name to say out loud because I'm so used to typing it. Uh, That's very strange. Uh, It's due. uh, The BZ4X is due in the fourth quarter of this year. It was previously meant to go on sale late last year, but it didn't happen. It's been delayed roughly 12 months. Um, Toyota Australia, Vice President of Sales, Marketing, and Franchise Operations, uh, Sean Hanley, said uh, the company is, uh, for the second option, I should say, is closely examining a production version of last year's BZ Compact SUV concept. So at this stage, it could potentially be two out of the three BZ uh, EVs coming to Australia might be uh, SUVs, but this third one isn't, this third upcoming EV isn't as clear because thus far uh, Toyota has only revealed what's called the BZ3. It's an electric sedan, but that's understood to only be for the Chinese market. So at this stage, we don't know what this third model could be. It could just be another SUV, but we don't know at this stage. Um, in regard to bZ4x though our local pricing and specifications um, haven't been detailed I understand it will probably be a fair bit uh, given the, the rising costs of lithium and inflation and logistics and all that kind of fun stuff but that's not isolated to just Toyota 2 prices are going up across the everywhere right now I'm forever writing stories on that um, although it may say, seem great that Toyota is bringing in three S, uh, three EVs by 2026, it's worth noting that uh, Toyota Europe has said that it plans to launch six BZ um, electric vehicles by the same day, same year of 2026. So double the amount of EVs.
0: <laughs> Once again, um, we missed that.
4: Yeah, someone missed out on half of them. And um, this announcement came uh, when you, uh, late in 2021, I think it was, when they showed off the heap and heap of uh, concept cars, which was really cool at the time. Um, but I want to know, guys, uh, what do you think besides the, the BZ4X, what will be the other two Toyota EVs coming? I mean, the the
2: BZ Compact EV makes a heap of sense for Australia. There's plenty of rivals out there for it already from the ZS EV to the BYD at 03. So, um, based on what Hanley has said and based on what we know of that market, that would make a heap of sense. Beyond that, I really have no idea. Um, There were so many concepts from Toyota in that run that you're talking about, Jack. There was about 20 cars there and it wasn't clear what would and wouldn't make production. I'm kind of hoping, and I don't know if this will be the case or not, but... Toyota actually uh, goes to the effort of making an electric sports car, uh, maybe an electric 86 or an electric Supra, yeah. and that seems like it would be a really logical fit for Australia if they do because um, Australians love performance cars. The Supra sold really strongly here, as has the 86 relative to demand. Um, Maybe that could be a way for Toyota to put itself at the forefront of people's minds when it comes to electric vehicles again, because as we know, although it is a leader in hybrid tech, it isn't really up with the leaders in electric tech at the moment. And by the end of this year, when the BZ4X finally arrives, it's going to be even more crowded. So maybe a sports car is the way for Toyota to remind people that, yeah, we do EVs too. And yeah, they're really cool.
0: Hell yes. And lastly, Jack, it looks like uh, MG has uh, listened to its uh, potential customers because we're getting a long-range ZS EV.
4: Yes, and it's coming sooner than you think, actually, Mm. which is super cool. Yeah, as you mentioned, Mandy, a longer-range version of the MG ZS EV SUV is on the way. Orders for it are uh, opening in March uh, with the first batch of vehicles already on the ship. So by the stage, uh, yeah, so like it's coming really soon. Uh, This longer-range ZS EV comes with a larger uh, 72-kilowatt-hour battery pack with a claimed 440 uh, kilometres of range according to WLTP testing. and This is compared to the existing standard range model, uh, which has a 50-kilowatt-hour battery and a claimed range of 320 uh, kilometres. Uh, At this stage, we don't know pricing, uh, but it's expected to be around, this long-range model is expected to be around $5,000 more. And uh, the range of MG ZS EV range currently starts at uh, $44,990 before on-road costs. It's also the cheapest EV on sale in Australia still. Um, But that's not all. I feel like I'm doing an infomercial. (laughs) 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 Um, MG, as as we've discussed on the podcast before, um, MG, MG is also uh, bringing the MG4, which is a a smaller electric hatchback. Uh, It's coming in July, so not too far away either. And um, it could be priced as low as $40,000, which would, uh, again, make it the cheapest EV in Australia. But we don't know that at this stage. There hasn't been any pricing that's been confirmed. So, yeah, two new MG EVs coming Super soon. But I'd love to know, Scott, what are you most excited for, the ZSEV long range or the MG4? Uh, I don't think I'd be doing my duty as
2: a motoring journal if I wasn't excited about the new one that we haven't seen or driven yet. Um, (laughs) The MG4 for me is really intriguing because it is a next generation car relative to the ZSEV. It's got a more advanced interior and a different look. And all the reports out of Europe where Traditionally, they've been quite difficult to win over for, for emerging brands such as MG have been incredibly positive. Um, if the price is right in Australia, that car really has the potential to, to be a best seller. Um, and I don't say that lightly. That is based on some really strong feedback from some journals I really respect overseas. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see whether it can take a dent out of the BYD Addo 3 and eventually maybe the test, of the Model 3 and, maybe drag the rest of the MG range along with it. MG is not struggling to sell cars at the moment, but with an affordable electric flagship like the MG4, sort of changing the way people look at the brand, it could drive it to grow even further.
0: All righty. That wraps up this week's car news. You can hit Car Expert for more. Thank you, Jack Quick. Thanks, Mandy. And to end this week's news, we've got a cover-off on January V facts And MoCo, it looks like another good month
3: was a good month. Uh, sales have been climbing year on year uh, for about seven months in a row now, or seven months in a row now, not about seven months, actually seven months. <laughs> um, so deliveries are up 12% in January uh, to just under 85,000 cars. Uh, it's the best January performance since 2018. So while it's not a record breaker, it really shows that Uh, supply starting to come through in the market because these are deliveries, these aren't sales. So OEMs are starting to actually cut down those wait times and deliver the vehicles. We've known for a long time that demand has been sky high, but supply is starting to get there. Um, electric cars are particularly interesting. So the Tesla Model 3 was the most popular passenger car slash SUV in the market. So Ranger and Hilux were number one and two, as always, but from the rest of the batch, the Model 3 was the top seller, which is the best performance for an EV to date. And the EV market share was 6%, which was double what we saw across all of 2022. So as you often see, if you plot a a graph showing the growth of EVs, it's not necessarily a, uh, a straight line. It hits an inflection point and goes skywards. And that's kind of what we're seeing now. Um, so, a so relatively, uh, I guess, rosy outlook for the industry after a couple of years of, of struggling and probably a sign that this year is going to be a better year than last year was.
0: So um, you just sort of gave us a bit of a teaser as to the top models in the top 10. Um, who mm-hmm. else came out on top?
3: Yeah, so, so Ford Ranger was number one, uh, just under 5,000 sales or 4,749, um, which is a fantastic result and, and probably indicative of, of customer sentiment where we see that the Ranger has definitely eclipsed the Hilux Um, in in most customers eyes and it's just been supply holding it back so that was number one the Hilux was still number two though Tesla Model 3 2927 deliveries and you can actually get one this month if you order one now they're they're basically ready to roll there's a heap of them Um, so that was the top three Mazda CX-3 and CX-5 were fourth and fifth so fantastic months for Mazda there Toyota RAV4, uh, wait lists are out to nearly two years for the hybrid still, and that was in sixth spot. Isuzu um, D-Max, MG, ZS, Mitsubishi Outlander, and Hyundai Tucson rolling at the top 10, so pretty familiar faces there.
2: Moko, I noticed that Kia is once again ahead of Hyundai. Uh, it does seem like that wasn't a flash in the pan and that, that maybe the world order shifted over in Korea. Are there any other surprising results or results that show the little guy beating the big guy?
3: Yeah, it's dead interesting with Kia, isn't it? Uh, 6,006 sales, uh, fourth in the market behind Toyota, Mazda and Ford. And Hyundai, its big brother, or supposedly big brother, was in fifth spot with 5,809. And that's a continuation of what we saw last year. And we also know that Kia could be selling a few thousand more a month at the moment, it just cannot get its hands on stock of important vehicles like Sportage. In terms of um, you know huge surprises for the month, not particularly, we did see the Chinese brands continue to make massive inroads, obviously MG, which was seventh in the market, and GWM, which was knocking on the door of the top 10. Tesla did actually make the top 10. We also saw really good double-digit growth across the Volkswagen group, You know, so brands like Skoda as well as Volkswagen and Audi after performances last year due to lack of stock. We're starting to see some better throughput happening there. Sanyong is a really good story. So 464 sales, up 83%. That company has a bit of uh, financial stability now under new ownership and it's posting record sales, so a fantastic result there. Um, Volvo car, again, showing really strong double-digit growth and um, 862 sales, so a great performance. We also saw some startup brands do quite well. So BYD sold 267 at 03E. EVs, Uh, Cupra sold 148 of its range, and Polestar continues to be a a top five player in the EV market as well. So some of those uh, lower
2: profile new brands are really starting to make inroads. Um, And MoCo, on the electric vehicle front, obviously it is growing. The Model 3 had a really big month. Um, What are the sort of predictions going forward for how that market will look maybe in the mid-year and the end of the year? Because we know there's a lot of new metal coming down under as well.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, at the moment, I mean, for that month, Tesla was sort of two-thirds of EV sales, um, and it, it's not getting the sort of stock of Model Y that it, it needs to, to, to satisfy deliveries. But I think we're going to see Tesla's sales grow, but its market share shrink, because there's more and more competition entering the market. You know, we've got the Aura from GWM is about to arrive, um, should be priced below $50,000, Volkswagen golf-size hatch, MG4. Um, similar story. Uh, the MGZS Long Range is about to arrive. Um, Cooper Bonds has gone on stream. And, and in the back half of the year, there are there a are myriad EVs, like tens of EVs coming onto the market, many of them quite affordably priced by EV standards. So we're going to see that market grow. All signs point to um, that 6% share being at least that's probably the, the minimum for the year, I would say. So we should see EV sales double or more this year. Um, and Tesla's share will shrink Um, which we've seen in other markets as well. There's more and more brands start to offer those products. We're also, um, you know, the the government's fringe benefits tax cuts uh, for businesses giving their uh, employees use of company vehicles after hours, it's really lucrative. You can can save tens of thousands of dollars doing that, so that's going to drive demand as well the real question for evs is just how many can local car companies source demand is huge supply is not if that kind of equation can be shifted slightly i think we'll see that market grow and grow and grow uh on a side note we'll also see hybrids continue to do really well i think plug-in hybrids will probably the one that struggle a bit because australians have shown that that's not technology they're particularly into at this stage
0: what about um uh, the segment breakdown no doubt suvs came out on top again
3: they certainly did. Uh, so, overarching uh, SUVs were 55% of the market, so 46,700 sales. Light commercials were 22% of the market, and passenger cars just under 20%. Um, we also saw small cars, which once upon a time was the dominant market segment, things like Corolla, Hyundai i30, Mazda 3, the number one segment, full stop, was now the sixth segment. It's the first time it's been outside the top five most popular segments pretty much ever, as far as I'm aware, or certainly in in, in more than a decade. Um, if we go a bit more granular, medium SUVs, so RAV4, CX-5, et cetera, were 21% of the market. 4x4 four four utes were 17%. Small SUVs were 13%. So there's half the market just in three segments there.
0: Wow. What about um, the state and territory breakdown? Yeah, so
3: one of the positive things we saw was that the growth wasn't limited to just one or two regions. It's not like we had a natural disaster in New South Wales that prompted sales to spike there and sort of plateau everywhere else, which we do sometimes see. The growth was unanimous across the board. So all eight states and territories showed growth to greater or lesser degrees. Tassie was up only 3%. The ACT was up 19%. So there's a bit of bit of uh, diversity there, but fundamentally they were all up. Um, the other unanimity we saw in the results was sales by type so we saw private buyers business fleets rental fleets and government fleets all grow uh, year on year as well which kind of shows that this isn't just you know market growth from one or two factors it's sort of across the board everybody is moving in the same direction geographically and in terms of the type of buyer they are so it's it's quite a healthy result in that
0: sense Hmm. any other final thoughts before we wrap up um, yeah,
3: the, probably the final one i make like is, is a geo geographical one, which is we've talked about the rise of China um, and we know that there are a number of Chinese products coming through this year from BYD and GWM and Haval and LDV and MG and JAC and Cherry and there's so many coming. Um, now, for January, China car sales were 12,486. That's up 100% or 99.3%, Korean-made cars were 12,606, so only 120 more cars in January came from Korea than China, um, which is a huge shift because Korea was untouchable in third place this time last year. And when you talk about the plethora of China-made cars coming, I think it's pretty much certain that China will be a top three source of vehicles by the end of this year um, and then you've only got Japan and Thailand ahead of it, which marks a pretty major shift considering five years ago Chinese cars were a joke and now it's knocking on the door of being our third biggest uh, source of vehicles, which is which is super interesting and one to watch.
0: Mm, certainly moved very, very quickly. Uh, that full Vfax report can be found at Car Expert and uh, feel free to put any comments if you have any questions. <laughs> Perhaps one of the most highly anticipated off-road vehicles to touch down in Australia for quite some time is the Ineos Grenadier. Could this be the off-roader many enthusiasts have been dreaming about? Al Bors fella might be able to answer that as he got the chance to put it through its paces. Hello, Boz. Hey, how you going, Mandy? Very good. I'm so excited to hear what you thought of this. In, in every every aspect, how was it?
1: Oh you know, gosh, I think my review was 4,200 words, so uh, I, I'm not going to speak to that in its entirety here, but um, look, it was actually really good. I was positively surprised by the vehicle, um, mainly on the on-road aspect. I definitely thought it would be amazing off-road long before I went in, and I wasn't disappointed. It's very, very capable off-road, but I think the surprising element for me was the on-road um, capability of the vehicle. It was actually really uh, decent, and it rode really nicely, and the... Um, ride was comfortable, the driving was comfortable, the interior cabin was comfortable. Perhaps the only negative um, was the steering. It, it uses a very traditional steering box, um, a rotating ball that is more suited to a truck than it is to an SUV, I suppose. And um, it's it's kind of what you would expect in a Jeep Wrangler, except this was a little bit, I guess not as good almost. Um, you just have to turn a lot to get the vehicle to move. So um, that was really the only downside, but the interior is really actually quite nice and modern. All the switch gears on the roof, um, it's really quiet inside. Yeah, there, there's a, there was a lot going for it.
0: What was the the infotainment system like, seeing as you've just talked about the, uh, the interior?
1: Yeah, it was surprisingly good. Um, the screen looked like it might have been borrowed from BMW, but the software definitely wasn't. It was their own custom software. Um, and uh, and it worked really nicely. Um, the car, look, I'm not sure if it's first production stuff or um, uh, something that's going to continue. But you had some niggling issues. Um, you kept giving up a couple of error codes. Um, it's a really interesting mix of modern technology and really old-school technology. Like if you want to put it into a center diff or low range, you've got to use an actual gear lever, and you've got to put it into neutral to do it. And like the gear lever to put into neutral is from BMW, and then the one to put it into low range is something that's borrowed, obviously, from the parts bin somewhere and there's a lot of like weird clashes of things together. Um, and then sometimes it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And I'll give you a few errors on the screen, but you get used to it and, um, it all eventually works. That's the main thing. Um, so, um, there was a lot of weird stuff with it. I I think for, for right-hand drive vehicles also, it's worth noting that there's a bit of cabin intrusion on the, on the, on your left foot, um, just where the exhaust manifold of the two bmw engines petrol and diesel which is you can get both um either one is good i I prefer the petrol but both of them their exhaust manifold actually takes a lot of space out of your where your footrest would be so um you know if if you're in a farm with big boots uh, that could be a problem for you well
2: as we've seen with everyone from tesla to rivian the building a car for the first time is really difficult uh, and that reliability is always a challenge up first. So did all of the cars you drove work and did it feel like it was cut out for life on the farm?
1: Um, Look, a few of them gave some errors. Um, There were some strange things like door handles um, that wouldn't shut properly because of the DOS proofing issues that they said they were fixing. The windscreen wiper didn't wipe very well on the right-hand side of the car. So for right-hand drive vehicles... Um, wasn't ideal, um, but none of them had any mechanical issues, as far as I know, apart from a few um, random errors. But I um, think did the cars work the whole way through? Yes, we did some serious off roading, we did some serious, um, I suppose, um, on roading as well. We went through water, we went climbing mountains, we did everything we could, and uh, the cars kept going. So I think they'll do really well on the farm, but it's worth noting that. These vehicles are also brand new, and anything to do with a farm vehicle, it's not about how it goes in the first couple of weeks. It's how it goes in 10 years, I suppose. And that's how that brand will build its reputation. But, you know, to be fair, it's got BMW engines. It's got a ZF gearbox. It's got a heap of diff ranges from well-known companies that make them for others. It's got a Bosch steering system. There's not really much that the company itself had to engineer. The whole car is engineered by, by Magna, which is an Austrian company that also happens to build the G-Wagon. Um, it's built at a Mercedes factory in France. As Costello correctly pointed out to me, it's not actually in Germany. Um, and, uh, you know, like the whole facility there, it's invested $800 million into it after buying it. So there's a lot going for that brand.
3: I'm glad you acknowledged uh, my geographical lesson to you, boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, mate, I've been, uh, I've been really interested in what Ineos has been promising for a long time, and one of them goes beyond the car. It talks about... Not wanting to ring fence customers into using a certain brand of accessories, not wanting to require people to go to a deal at a service. By that I mean they're opening up their servicing to Bosch uh, service centres. They're even promising to offer actual repair data to customers and to basically support the aftermarket as much as they can. Um, Justin, the, the head of the company in APAC, has basically said an open-source approach to 4x4 enthusiasts, which is very different to Toyota and others. Did any of us talk about that at all and perhaps give you some more details on on that sort of idea? And, and what do you think about that, I guess, being a bit of a USP for a new brand in the market?
1: Yeah, I think they did. The um it's, it's really interesting that uh, they're, they're going that way. I, I guess they kind of need to because they're competing against brands that have been around for literally probably 100 years um, and have got a really long uh, history of support from third-party manufacturers, accessory makers, whatever. So by giving away the blueprint to the technicals of the car and allowing manufacturers of accessories to come in and build parts without having to, you know, try and figure out how to do it because they've got all the engineering requirements already from the OEM. Um, It gives them a bit of an advantage. Um, Also, yes, you're right, they do provide full service guides for how to service the vehicle yourself, um, which is pretty cool. They haven't really said how that affects your warranty. So I can imagine that being a little bit of an interesting dilemma in Australia anyway. But, um, look, they have to be novel, they have to be different, and uh, they're certainly doing that. And I I think long-term, as long as their cars are reliable and the powertrains last... And things don't fall apart I, I genuinely feel like they're going to build themselves a really nice cult following and australia is like the fourth biggest market for them from memory so it's a huge market and if they get it right they'll do really well my only um uh i guess not issue but my only annoyance with the brand was the price rise um it, it was quite a substantial price rise and everyone's doing price rises but i felt like as a new brand you would just try and get through the first couple of years and you know get under the market value but Then again, they've sold so many, so maybe they know more about market uh, supply and demand than I do.
2: Bors, that was actually going to be my next question. Um, We know the price has jumped to $97,000 before on-road costs for the entry-level model in Australia. Uh, Previously, it was $84,500, so a really significant increase. I know you've got one of these cars coming with your name on it. Do you think that with the price increase, you still want to take delivery now that you've had a chance to experience the car?
1: See, I didn't realise the price increase applied to me. Uh, I missed the email that said I needed to lock in an order, which really kind of frustrates me because I felt like that's an SMS or a phone call. Um, so I guess, again, one of those things from the brand that hasn't sold cars before, but um, I felt like they should know better. So I was a little bit annoyed, to be honest. Um, and it's not so much that if the price of the car was what it was to start with, uh, I, I don't know if I would have put the order through just because when I saw the pricing, I thought, gee, that's really well priced for what it is, especially like I want to get like a Fieldmaster. That would be a really, so they got the Trailmaster and a Fieldmaster and the base spec. The base spec is great if you want to build your own car from scratch, but those two other specs are, are fantastic for someone that just wants something that's pre-built. But now that they're getting into like 130 grand with a couple of options and stuff, it's starting to look quite expensive. So I, I really liked the car. I was a little bit um i suppose hesitant given the issues with some of these first production cars um all legally, all fixable but i would probably now go I'm, I'm glad i'm not getting the very first coming um and maybe i'll perhaps wait and uh get second year production and there's a couple of things coming from next year they're going to add in AEB and a couple of other safety features that they have to do for the european market that they're not necessarily had to do before and um hopefully that gets passed down to the australian market as well but you know, it's, it's the perfect adventure car. I'd love to buy one and actually use it for something useful rather than put 22-inch massive wheels on it and make it a G-Wagon look like.
3: Mate, you would last half a night camping in the Outback and then you would put your tail between your legs and you would scarper back to Brisbane to your house as quick as you could. Don't pretend
1: otherwise. I oh, would we'll just sleep at a nearby hotel. It's a lot easier. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that uh, full review is now at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, Abbas. Thanks,
1: guys.
0: The new 2023 Lexus RX is here. And with the new looks aside, it appears there's some changes elsewhere as well. Scully, you got the chance uh, to see all this firsthand and give it a drive.
2: I did. Uh, Lexus is in a really interesting spot at the moment. It's been really crippled by supply recently, but it's also trying to transform its brand a little bit and move away from some of the tech and some of the quirks that made it very popular with a certain type of buyer, but also ruled out some of the people that quite like BMWs and Audis and Mercedes vehicles. And the RX is the latest step in that process. It looks a little bit more aggressive and sportier than the last car. It's got a much higher tech interior that fixes a lot of the problems with the infuriating infotainment system in the old one. Um, And it also has a new flagship performance model that is faster and more engaging to drive than any Lexus SUV I've ever experienced. So there's quite a bit to talk about there.
0: Nice. And no doubt the, the pricing will be affected by all this as well.
2: Yeah. So, Lexus has effectively killed the base model for 2023, although there is obviously still a base car. You're looking at about $15,000 more to get into an RX to start with relative to what you would have paid previously. That is obviously a lot of money, but it is also in keeping with the broader trend in this segment. Um, The new RX is also a little bit better specced and a little bit more grown up than the old one. So in terms of what you're getting, even the base luxury front-wheel drive at $87,500 does come with a lot of kit relative to maybe a base X5 or Q7. Uh, Top end, you're looking at $126,000 for the F-Sport Performance all-wheel drive, which brings quite a unique hybrid system, some unique equipment as well to the car, and is sort of of Lexus's take almost on a, a big under performance diesel or petrol engine. Uh, it's a little bit different to anything else I've
0: driven from Lexus before. So what about rivals? Because I really can't think of any that comes to mind with this one so far.
2: Yeah, the RX sort of slots in essentially between a BMW X3 and X5 or Audi Q5 and Q7 based on size. It's got quite a big boot um, and quite a big back seat, but it, it's ultimately not quite as chunky as the latest X5. Um, I think at the bottom end, it really does take on mid and top end versions of the X3 and Q5. Uh, But its unique selling point is the fact you can get a hybrid powertrain in it. And at the top end, uh, the F-Sport performance takes on stuff like the Audi SQ5, the BMW X3, M40, and then more entry level versions of the Q7 and X5. Uh, It sort of splits the middle a little bit based on price and based on the size inside.
0: Hmm. Did you get a chance to, to drive all the the whole range? And what do you think is the sweet spot?
2: We did. Uh, and it's quite interesting. This car does feel very spec dependent. Um, the hybrid, both all-wheel drive and front-wheel drive, use a new powertrain relative to the old car. Rather than a V6 engine, you now get a 2.5-litre four-cylinder making 184 kilowatts combined with the electric motor. Um it feels exactly like you would expect a Lexus hybrid SUV to feel. Uh, the one that we drove was a luxurious spec; it wasn't the F Sport, so it felt really quite floaty and relaxed and lovely and quiet on the highway. It's very efficient when you drive it uh, at lower speeds and and when you you know aren't pushing too hard. The the trip computer on the the car that had been doing the rounds with the media was showing six and a half liters per hundred k's, which Is deeply impressive when you consider how most journos drive and the fact cars sit around and that sort of thing. In terms of how exciting it is, it's definitely the least interesting of the three to drive. Um, It still does that Toyota hybrid thing where when you put your foot down, the revs kind of flare and you get a little bit of noise from the petrol engine. Um, And obviously, you know, there's nothing particularly thrilling about a a hybrid at low speeds where you've just got gentle electric acceleration until the petrol engine kicks in. Ultimately, the point of this car is not to be exciting. It's to be the efficient alternative to something like a diesel German or even maybe an entry level petrol, and it really does tick those boxes. I think it's also worth mentioning that regardless of which RX you go for, the car really is beautifully refined. Um, We drove out of a winery north of Melbourne on some pretty average roads with some gravel roadwork sections and that sort of thing. And besides a bit of engine noise when you're really pushing the hybrid hard, it just is dead quiet. Um, Even the F Sport models with their slightly firmer suspension, they don't feel crashy or or tight like the Germans sometimes can. And I mean, the the sports luxury and the luxury with their more relaxed suspension tune, they're they're just beautiful. They float along really nicely. So if you have hopped out of an older Lexus into the new one, it's still going to feel roundly familiar i think the biggest point of difference is the f sport performance Uh, it's the first lexus hybrid to feature a turbocharger and it makes 273 kilowatts Um, so it's a pretty punchy thing it's got a higher output rear electric motor and a unique all-wheel drive system and it also debuts rear wheel steering for lexus in the rx the result of all of that is a car that It doesn't feel outright like a BMW M or Audi RS vehicle, but it definitely does feel more purposeful in the regular range, and it's actually quite fun to drive. Um, Unlike the regular hybrid, it's got a normal six-speed automatic transmission that's hooked up to the hybrid system, and that means when you put your foot down, you don't get that drone. It actually revs out quite logically or quite nicely, Um, And with the backing of the electric motor, it feels really torquey. It almost feels like a Lexus interpretation of a a big sort of diesel six. Um, Obviously, Lexus doesn't do diesel, but the the feeling of torque and kind of effortless performance when you put your foot down is the same. It also handles better than the other cars we drove. The rear wheel steering system will do up to four degrees in the opposite direction to the front wheels and also the same direction as the front wheels, depending on how fast you're going. And on some pretty tight and twisty roads, when you turn the car in, it really does feel distinct from the rest of the range because it turns in a bit sharper and and feels much more nimble. Ultimately, I don't think people are going to buy this car because they want it to be an outright sports car. Australians love performance and they love the best of anything. And so the fact the F Sport performance represents that for the the RX range means it's going to be popular already. But it definitely takes the RX somewhere it hasn't been before and presents quite a compelling alternative to call it an X3 M40 or an X5 M50 in that it's still relatively efficient, it's still a good size, it's still very luxurious but it's got a solid punch in the back and more solid handling. And buyers have responded by snapping up pretty much all of them for the next 12 months. Um, Lexus has good RX supply for all models except the F Sport, and it really says it underestimated how many people would want them. Scully, let's talk about plug-in hybrids. Um, Lexus has got a plug-in hybrid NX,
3: which is its smaller SUV. It also has a wait list of two years, so it's obviously getting a heck of a lot of demand, Um, We see competitive vehicles like the Mazda uh, CX60 coming into the market that also has a plug-in hybrid. Um, We know that Aussie buyers historically haven't necessarily gravitated to it, but at the same time, competition would probably create interest. Lexus has one of this drivetrain overseas in the RX. Why isn't it offering it here? And did it give us any update on whether it might change
2: its tune? Yeah, so at launch, the reason is that production is being prioritized for other markets, is what Lexus has said. So it plans to bring the 450H plus plug in hybrid, that is a mouthful, to Australia eventually. It said it's definitely coming, it's just a matter of when. Um, But as we've seen from quite a lot of electric vehicles and plug in hybrids, at the moment, there are other markets that have quite strict carbon regulations that mean that for every gram of CO2 you are over a limit, you get fined. And A plug-in hybrid, even though we know in the real world if it's not charged, it won't do these official figures, but with a claim of 1 litre per 100 kilometres or 1.5 litres per 100 kilometres goes a long way to offsetting every LX500 you sell, that'll do 10 or 11. So, it'll get here, but at the moment, it's going to other markets. To be honest, having driven the NX and quite a few plug-in hybrids, I get why some people like them, but – and Mike, I know we're sort of aligned on this – Ultimately, plug-in hybrids can be the best of both worlds for a very small number of people. But I do feel like often they're kind of jack of all trades and master of none. You know, if you're driving a short enough electric range to use the electric motor most of the time, you're probably better buying an electric car. And if you're spending enough time on the highway that you need the petrol engine, you're probably better just buying an efficient petrol car. So as much as some people will be yearning for this, and I know some of my our colleagues are among that, I don't know that it's a great loss that Lexus doesn't offer it at launch.
0: All right. Um, one thing we haven't quite touched on yet is um, cabin space. What's it like inside?
2: Um, I think the first thing worth mentioning is regardless of the space, this cabin looks a million miles more modern than the old RX. Awesome. Um, we've for a long time complained about Lexus cabins because they have fiddly little touch pads and buttons hidden in weird, weird spots. The new RX fixes all of that. Uh, it looks fantastic in person. The materials are beautiful. Um, and rather than the little mouse pad and fiddly controls, you've got a giant touchscreen in the middle of a dash that still has just enough sort of fixed features for climate control that mean you're not diving through menus all the time. So on that front, Lexus has done a really good job. Um, in terms of space, up front it's more comfortable than the NX. Even with the sunroof, I fit really comfortably. And in the NX, I felt a little bit cramped, like you were sitting right up high with your head in the roof. So the fact the RX is a little bit bigger has definitely paid off there. Um, In terms of the rear, the car is the same size on the outside as before, but it's got a longer wheelbase, and that means that in the back it does feel more spacious. Um, An X5, I think, is probably still a more practical car. It's got slightly taller windows and slightly more legroom, but you'll comfortably get teenagers or adults back there behind other normal-sized adults. It feels wide back there and there's lots of USB ports, vents, climate controls, that sort of thing. It's also got quite a big boot uh, at up to 600 litres or, or around that mark. It's a long sort of flat space that if you're chucking golf clubs or awkwardly sized antique furniture, for example, in there, that's what I imagine the average Lexus buyer does. Um, it, it's going to fit you know, better than before, although that the stylized sort of tailgate does eat a little bit into the space on offer there.
0: And have you given it a car expert rating yet? Not
2: yet. Um, uh. It's been a busy week this week, so the review is not quite <laughs> fully written. But uh, relative to the old RX, which was in the sort of mid-7 range, it'll definitely be an improvement. And I'm very much looking forward to getting individual variants through the car expert office to get more of a feel for how each of them stacks up because yeah. we drove three or four different variants on the launch, but it does feel like how you spec the car does have a significant impact on how it drives. So finding out which one's the sort of pick of the range and where to send people is going to be fun.
0: Awesome. Well, by the time you hear this podcast, the review will be live at Car Expert. Go and check it out. Scully, what cars will be coming up in the garage next week?
2: As always, it's a bit of a mix. Um, we've got a BMW X-Drive 30d diesel through in Melbourne, which is quite a nice car. I took that last night actually and I do love a diesel engine even though they're a bit on the nose at the moment. Um, we've got a Mazda CX-9 GT-SP, an Isuzu MUX and a Mazda MX-5 RF. And then we've also got a GWM Havel H6 GT Ultra, which is the Havel H6 Coupe with the funniest exhaust system in the world. You can put it in a mode that makes it sound like a uh, like a Lancer with a hole drilled in the muffler. It's fantastic. Um, up in Sydney, Tony Crawford is driving the Honda Civic VTi LX. And up in Brisbane, we've got a BMW X1 XDrive
0: 20i. You need to record the sound of that exhaust to play it on the podcast at some point. That sounds amazing. Um, And where's the team off to next week, Moko?
3: Yeah, there's a bit going on. At the moment, there's the uh, Subaru Outback Turbo in New South Wales and the Nissan X-Trail e-Power hybrid uh, of a different variety in Queensland happening. And then next week, we've got the launch of one of the most anticipated cars of the year, the Toyota GR Corolla. And um, on a slightly more adventurous note, we've also got a trip over to India um, to have a look at some Mahindras. Mahindra, are the world's biggest tractor maker, which makes some SUVs and pickup trucks, um, is actually getting serious about Australia and rolling out some interesting new products over the next little while and wants to show us everything that it's got coming up in its native market. So a few interesting trips uh, coming ahead.
0: Awesome. Cannot wait to hear about them. Uh, Scott Collie and Mike Costello, thank you. Thank
2: you, Mandy. Thanks, Maddie.